0: Good morning, everybody. morning. I am happy to say that school is out for (laughs) summer. Some of you, it was out last week. Some of you, I know Northern doesn't end until Thursday this week. So uh, still some people in school. So pray for them. Um, They're they're, they're gonna have a hard time. Um, And and I really enjoyed our outdoor uh, graduation ceremony on the hottest day of the year so far. 96 degrees during graduation was really good. Uh, The next day, if we'd have done it at the same time, it would have been about 70 degrees. So uh, welcome to Sprummer in Pennsylvania. Um, Just a couple of really quick things. First of all, I hope to see some of you at the Revival on the Farm sometime this week. I'll be there every night. Um, and I know the youth are coming tonight, uh, come on out, it is always a, just a very uh, spiritually refreshing time, spiritually edifying time, um, and just want to invite you all uh, out for that. And also, the, uh, the Daniel trip, we're, we're getting things kind of set for that. We've got about 35 people uh, signed up so far. Um, and we are, and I know this is in March, it's like really, really far away, but we are uh, gonna be cutting off the signups next Sunday. Uh, so if you wanna sign up, if you uh, wanna go on that trip, make sure you sign up uh, in the back or send an email to church office at morninghourchapel.org and we'll get you on the list. Um, has anybody here ever heard of Ignis Semmelweis? One person has heard of Ignis Semmelweis. Well, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Ignis. Um, it's possible if you're in the healthcare field, uh, if you're a doctor, if you're a nurse, PA, something like that, you probably have heard this name at least once uh, in your career. Uh, probably sometime, you know, way, way back when you were in school, you heard this name. Um, Ignis Semmelweis was a Hungarian physician back in the mid 19th century, and he worked in obstetrics. And became what was what we would now call the chief resident at Vienna General Hospital's first obstetrical clinic. Now, this it wasn't because it was first; it's because they had two uh, clinics in Vienna, and uh, one was the first, one was the second. And the first clinic was notorious in Vienna for its maternal mortality rate. Um, it was something around a little over 10 percent of all mothers who would come in to give birth at the first clinic would die from giving birth. Um, and the second clinic, their, their, their death rate was not great, but it was about three or 4%. So there was this big difference. And the, the question became why in the same hospital were the mortality rates so much different between the first clinic and the second clinic? And it had gotten so bad that when mothers came to sign up to, to deliver their babies, if they couldn't get into the second clinic, they, they wanted to avoid the first clinic so much that they would actually give birth out in the streets or give birth at home. It was that bad in this first clinic. But Dr. Summelweis noticed something odd. The women that were not coming to the first clinic, they were giving birth in the streets, they were giving birth at home, They were surviving at a greater rate than the people that were coming to the first clinic. And this just flabbergasted him. He had absolutely no idea what was going on. The women in the first clinic were developing something called purpural fever, and it was killing them. And what Dr. Semmelweis noticed is that most of the doctors who delivered babies in the first clinic also worked in the morgue. And he noticed that they would not wash their hands coming from the morgue to come deliver a baby in the clinic. And he noticed this and he started promoting hand hygiene. He started promoting the washing of hands at Vienna General Hospital. But because he had no scientific data, he he wasn't able to do a study Even though he was promoting this hand hygiene, his colleagues began to ridicule him. His colleagues began to put him down, mostly because they were upset that he was telling them they were doing something wrong. And as it turned out, the ridicule became so bad that Dr. Semmelweis had a nervous breakdown. And 14 days after he entered an asylum, he was beaten to death by the guards there and it wasn't until about 10-15 years later that another doctor that you may have heard of louis pasteur discovered that what dr Semmelweis had been saying was true that hand hygiene is crucial to the survival of mothers during childbirth and most of us have never heard of Ignaz Semmelweis. You haven't heard of him until today. But we became intimately familiar with his theories about two years ago, when all of us were washing our hands as a way to avoid passing COVID 19. Semmelweis was considered insignificant. He was considered unimportant. He was considered to be an idiot in the medical community, and that's how they branded him. But he was insignificant, and yet now he is known, and a lot of nurses will know him as the savior of mothers. His work, his encouragement for hand hygiene saved lives. Have you ever felt Insignificant, unimportant, worthless to the world, worthless to your family, worthless to your friends. I think we've all felt that from time to time. We might not have expressed it, but we've probably felt it. Have you ever felt insignificant or worthless or unimportant to God? Like God could not possibly use me to do anything. You ever felt that way? This morning, we're continuing a sermon series called I'm Not, I Am. And we're talking about some of the ways that we look at our lives and we talk ourselves into believing things like I'm not good enough, I'm not important enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not brave enough to truly step out and do the will of God, to step out in faith and to do what he is asking us to do and the work that he's asking us to complete. And today, we're gonna to be looking at a story in the Old Testament book of Judges. This is the story of Gideon. Now, some of us know the story of Gideon because we have watched Veggie Tales. And we know that Gideon defeated the Midianites with his trumpets and his magic flashlight. But we're gonna take a look at the story a little bit about Gideon, not so much focusing on the things that he did But on the things that he agreed to do for God and we're going to take a look at how insignificant he felt and we start in Judges chapter 6 verse 1 this morning and we read that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel and because of Midian the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. The Midianites came into Israel and Israel fled. Israel decided it was going to be better to live in a cave than it was to live among the Midianites. That's how bad things had gotten for Israel. And the next four verses, we're not going to read everything this morning, but the next four verses tell us just how badly it went for Israel because of God's judgment. And when Israel finally cried out to God and and begged for his help, God said this, but you have not obeyed my voice. Even now you haven't obeyed my voice. And give me just a second. I'm gonna switch microphones, if you guys don't mind. Not sure what the feedback is, but... All right. So, God has seen the things that Israel has done. And we're gonna see in a minute just how badly it had gotten. But God was not without mercy. God is never without mercy. And so God sent his angel to talk to this man named Gideon. And in Judges chapter six, verse 12, we read "And the angel of the Lord appeared to him. This is Gideon and said to him, the Lord is with you. O mighty man of valor. And God asks Gideon to rescue Israel from the Midianites. He wants him to go. He wants them to, to defeat the Midianites. He wants to take Israel back. And he calls him a mighty man of valor. God assigns worth to Gideon right off the bat. The very first thing that he says. Lord says, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And listen to Gideon's reply. And is this not the reply that many of us might have as God asks us to do something? Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. How am I supposed to lead an army? And of course, God could have pointed back to what he just said. Oh, mighty man of valor. You are certainly up to this task. But Gideon just doesn't feel it. Anybody ever not feel it? You ever not feel it? Have you ever felt weak? Have you ever felt like you're the least of whatever? God asks you to go and Oh, I don't know, teach a class or go to uh, a prayer service and pray for people. God asks you to go out into the community and help the homeless or uh, provide food, shelter, housing for somebody. And you feel like, well, I can't do that. I don't have the money for it. I don't have the resources for it. I don't have the time for it. God must need somebody else because he's certainly not talking to me. But even when we're right with God, even when we feel that God is on our side, right? And this is what we're talking about, God is on our side. Even when we feel that way. Sometimes we believe the lie that we're just not important enough. We're not significant enough. Nobody, if I go out on the streets in East Berlin and I start talking to people about Jesus, nobody's going to listen to me. Why would they listen to me? I'm nobody. And this is how we feel. And this is what Gideon was experiencing. But even when we're talking about maybe not even going out into the community, maybe when we're talking about being here at church, or maybe when we're talking about being at home, we compare ourselves to other people. And then all of a sudden we say things like, well, I'm not a good enough father. I'm not a good enough wife. I'm not a good enough husband. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. Even though I have the power of God with me. These are all the feelings that Gideon was feeling when God called him to defeat this army that had taken over Israel. But Gideon forgot one crucial thing, and I think it's a thing we forget sometimes too. The Lord said to him, but I will be with you. I will be with you. Gideon said, I'm not. God says, I am. I'm right here. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to lose because I am with you. God is right there. And if he's asking you to do something, he's right there. He knows what you need. He knows that you need support or you need resources or you need encouragement. And God is going to put people in your lives to give you those things. He's going to put the resources in your hands that you didn't even realize that you could have. In order to do his will and build his kingdom. You remember what we learned last week? The lady at the church told me, God doesn't call the equipped so much as he equips the called. And yes, if you have resources, God's going to call you and he's going to ask you to use those resources. But if you don't have resources and God asks you to use resources that you don't have, guess what? He's going to give them to you. He's going to provide them for you. He's going to make sure that you have everything you need to get it done. And we can rest on that promise. So what did God want Gideon to do? There was one thing that Gideon needed to do first, before he could deal with the Midianites. And in verses 25 to uh, 27 of Judges chapter 6, we read, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, That your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. The Asherah was a big pole. Cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. This was Israel's problem. Israel was worshiping Baal. And some of you might not know who Baal is. He's one of the false gods that Israel worshiped. And Baal was a big one. Baal was the God of the area, the Midianites and the Jebusites and all of the other sites. They worshiped Baal. And it's believed, and we can kind of see this even in our own modern worship of false idols, that it's not really about a religious choice that Israel was worshiping Baal. It was an economic choice. It was about flourishing. It was about making sure that we covered all of our bases so that we could be as blessed as possible. And if that means that we're going to, yeah, we're going to worship Yahweh. We're going to worship him too. But just in case, we're also going to worship Baal because Baal, he's the God that brings rain and he's the God that blesses the earth. And he's the God that brings forth healthy babies. And he's the God that raises the dead. And just in case God can't do those things. We're going to set ourselves up a little altar over here, and we're going to worship Baal, too. And isn't that what we often do? How many of us say that we rely 100% completely on God and his provision and his love and his power, but just in case, I'm going to go over, I'm going to try to get this job and make a lot of money so God doesn't have to worry about making sure that I have enough money. God's got a lot of other things to worry about. I'll take care of the money part. But we do that without even thinking about it sometimes. We think on our own self-sufficiency more than we think about the sufficiency of God. I'm guilty of that. Every day I'm guilty of that. How many times when I get into my car do I pray that God will get me safely from point A to point B? No, I rely on my own excellent driving skills. Be quiet, Wendy. (laughs) But we rely on ourselves. And when Israel was worshiping Baal, he, they, weren't, they weren't saying God doesn't exist. They weren't saying that God isn't in their life. They weren't saying any of those things. What they were saying is maybe God's not enough. Or maybe God's got too much on his plate. We got to do some things on our own. But God is telling Gideon, I want you to stop Israel. And you're going to start in your father's house. Remember what he said. Remove the altar that is at your father's house. Start at home. Remove that altar, cut down that Asherah, and then use those, that, that wood to sacrifice to me, to show me that you believe that I am sufficient for all of your needs. And we have to start at home we have to start expressing and showing that God is sufficient for our needs. And the things that we do have, we need to make sure that every day we are thankful to God for His provision. We are thankful to God for breathing air today. We are thankful to God for getting us from point A to point B in our travels. We, need to be thankful to God that he has provided us with a job and a home and things that he wants us to use for his glory. Gideon started home. Tear down that altar to Baal. And Gideon takes on the challenge. He says yes to God. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. How huge was this altar that it took 10 men to do the work? So he took 10 men, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it at night. See, God didn't say, well, you got to do this out in front of everybody. He said, start at home. Take care of this problem. Take care of this issue. How many of you sometimes fear what your family might say? Family that don't know God. When you stand up and you say, this is what the Bible says. This is what God is telling me to do. We get, we get scared sometimes of our families. So Gideon worked at night. But of course, the next day, they saw this huge monstrosity of an altar and the huge, tall Asherah pole. No, they, they weren't there anymore. And the men came to Josiah's house. I'm sorry, Joash's house. Joash was Gideon's father and said, what happened? Where's the pole? We were coming here to worship because it's almost harvest time and we need the rain and we need a good harvest. Why can't we worship Baal now? Where's our stuff? And they did their little investigation. And they discovered that Gideon was the one that tore down their altar. And they wanted to kill him for it. That's what the Bible says. They were going to kill Gideon. But in verse 31 of chapter 6, we read, But Joash, Gideon's father, said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by mourning. If he is a God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. And this is where we start getting into all of these modern day arguments that we see people having back and forth about all of the different things that might be right or might be wrong. When we challenge the thinking of people that say God doesn't exist. The Bible is wrong. The Bible is written by men. The Bible's been changed thousands of times. We don't have to contend for God. God shows people he is alive through our lives. God shows people that he exists through nature. God contends for himself. And when the world tries to contend for the other side, and let's face it, they're contending for Satan when they're contending for the other side. Their arguments don't hold up. Why are you going to stand up for a God? can a God stand up for himself? I know my God can. Can yours? And Joash dares the men of the town to lay one finger on his son. Joash stands up for Gideon. And this is another thing that God does for us. He puts people in our lives. He puts us in families. That will encourage us. He puts us in families that will build us up. He puts us in families that will say yes. Do what God has asked you to do. That's what Joash said. Because I'm very sure Joash knew that God could call lightning down from heaven if he wanted to. I'm fairly sure that when Joash says, whoever contends for Baal shall be put to death by morning, it wasn't Joash that he was thinking would put him to death. He knew the power of God. He knew that God would contend for himself if he needed to. God puts people in our lives. Maybe it's not our family, maybe it's our friends, maybe it's coworkers, maybe it's pastors, maybe it's teachers. But these are people that will encourage us. These will people that will build us up and say, go do what God tells you to do. 1936, there was a boy who who was born in uh, just a little bit outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. He was a dairy farmer, well, his father was, and he kind of worked in the business. Loved Tarzan novels. Would always hang in trees, doing the the Tarzan yell. Everybody knows the Tarzan yell, right? So who's gonna do the Tarzan yell? No? No? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Boy was raised in a Presbyterian church, but um, he was turned away from the youth group at his church because he was found to be too worldly. And if you were worldly, you couldn't attend youth group. Fortunately, he encountered a man who worked on his father's farm who encouraged him to go to a revival meeting in the city of Charlotte, not too far from his farm. Boy found Jesus Christ for real at this revival. And in 1936, he decided to attend Bob Jones University. It's a university that trains uh, pastors and teachers uh, down in North Carolina. And of course, he had a hard time with some of the teachings, which he thought were too legalistic. He'd just come to Christ. He, he felt that there was something more to God than just the rules. And he was almost expelled. And then the head of the university, Dr. Jo- uh, Bob Jones, Sr. came to him and said, we're not going to expel you. But at best, all you're going to be all you're going to amount to is a poor country Baptist preacher somewhere out in the sticks. You got, you, you got skills as a speaker, I'll give you that. But you're going to be out in the sticks of North Carolina for the rest of your life, preaching to a tiny little congregation. That's all you're going to be good for. And it's okay. not that God can't use that, but that's all. Fast forward 10 years. And this two-worldly dairy farmer, who should have been a backwoods country preacher, was preaching to 6,000 people in the Civic Auditorium in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And he continued preaching to thousands and thousands of people in auditoriums and stadiums across the world. And 45 years after that first 6,000-person congregation, This poor country Baptist preacher preached the gospel to 155,000 people in Moscow. And 25% of all of the people who attended came forward at an altar call and gave their lives to Jesus Christ in Moscow. Poor country Baptist preacher indeed. This boy's name was Reverend Billy Graham. Billy Graham was told he's too insignificant. He's not doing everything right. He was kept out of a youth group for being too worldly. 155,000 Russians heard the gospel, and 25% of them came to Christ. If Billy Graham had said, I'm not significant enough, I'm not important enough, Bob Jones is right, I should just go and found my little church in the backwoods. God could have used that. But that's not what God had in store for Billy Graham. Billy Graham said, I'm not. God said, I am. I'm going to use you if you will let me. If you will obey me, I am going to use you to spread the gospel throughout the world. And it wasn't about making Billy Graham great. It was about Billy Graham making God great giving glory to the father for all that he had and all he was able to do and we see this in Gideon too in this story great ending to this story gideon is gone he's defeated the Midianites. He's defeated a whole bunch of other enemies of Israel for God because God has told him to do these things. And at the end of this time period, he's after he's defeated the Midianites with only 300 guys, by the way, up against the entire uh, army of Midian. After he defeats all of these people, in the end, Gideon knew it was not the people that he served, it was God that he served. Because the people came to him and begged him to be their king. They begged him to be the leader of Israel. They said, You and your son, you're our guys. We want you to lead us. And look at what Gideon's response was in Judges 8.23. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. God might put me in that position, but it's not me that's going to be ruling over you. It's God. And every time something happens, I'm going to give the glory to him. In our world, significance is often measured by wealth or power or influence or how many TikTok followers you have or how much of a social media influencer you are. That is not the way that it works in the kingdom of God. In God's kingdom, these things in themselves are unimportant, money, wealth, prestige, honor, people knowing your name. Of themselves, those things are unimportant. You know when they become important? When God says they're important. When God says, I'm gonna use that. You like to influence people, influence people for me. You like to make TikTok videos? Make TikTok videos for me. That's when we become significant and important, when God tells us what to do and we obey him. God sees our true value when we obey his word, when we obey his command, when we do his will. And yeah, sometimes, like King Solomon, He adds on riches and he adds on kingdom and he adds on all of these things. And sometimes, guess what? He doesn't. But whatever God gives us, let us use to his glory. Use the things that God has put into your life. Be in relationship with people who are going to speak into you words of encouragement to do the will of God. But never forget, your significance comes from the Lord. It doesn't matter how important the world thinks you are. You are significant because God says you are significant. And you are significant because God says, I am. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe God is I am? Is God with you? And are you with God? We learn God's will through reading His Scripture. We we learn God's will through praying and then listening for God to speak to us. And I want to encourage all of you to do that. Some of you do it and do it quite well. Some of you have never done it before. Sit down with a cup of coffee in the Bible and about an hour of your time and just pray that God shows you something. Because if you're willing, God says, I am, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your presence. We thank you that you have told us, I am. Not that you were and you're not anymore, not that you will be, but you're not yet, but you are always. Father, I ask that you would give us the courage, give us the strength, give us the time, give us the willingness to listen for your voice. Give us the willingness to obey and to serve you. Give us the willingness to accept the resources that you give us and the people that you place in our lives. Father, help us to do mighty things in your kingdom, because everything in your kingdom is a mighty thing. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to celebrate communion. We do this uh, the first Sunday of every month here at Morning Hour Chapel. Jesus lived a life with others. Jesus selected 12 specific individuals to do most of life with, but he had a lot of other followers. He had a lot of other support. There were a bunch of women who supported him financially. There were some Pharisees who supported him in secret. They believed who Jesus said he was. And though they couldn't be outspoken with their fellow Pharisees, they came to Jesus sometimes at night, kind of like Gideon. And they talked with Jesus about the kingdom and eternal life. Jesus spent all of this time with these people. But his true purpose for coming was for all people. His true purpose for coming was so that we might know the Father, so that we might be able to be forgiven of our sin. And the night before he died, he instituted what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. He gave us bread that represented his body that was going to be broken. He gave us wine that represented the blood that was going to be spilled on our behalf. And this wasn't a plan that Jesus came up with when he was age 30. This was a plan that Jesus, God, the son, God, the father, and God, the Holy Spirit came up with before the foundation of the world. It was always the plan. And Jesus, as a human, obeyed God's will. This morning, while we prepare our hearts and our minds to receive communion, think about the things that Jesus did. Think about the plan that was eternal. Think about the ways that God wants to use you to point people towards His Son. This is a challenging thing to do. But start contemplating those things as we pray this morning. Jesus, on the night that He was betrayed, the night before his death, took a loaf of bread, he blessed it, and then he broke it, and he passed it amongst his disciples. And he said, take and eat this. This represents my body, which is broken for you. Each time you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. body of Jesus Christ. After supper, he took a cup of wine, and again he blessed it. He passed it around to his disciples, and he said, Drink this, all of it. This represents my blood. It is a new covenant with God. It is for the forgiveness of sins. Each time you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Blood of Jesus Christ. We thank God that Jesus Christ did not remain dead, but he is living. We thank God that he sent his Holy Spirit to give us power, to give us guidance, to give us instruction. Want to encourage all of you, if you have the ability sometime this week, come out to revival on the farm, seven o'clock, uh, tonight through Wednesday night. Uh, and if you don't make it, uh, please, Start listening for God. Start hearing his voice. Sometimes it takes a while, but God wants to speak with you. God wants to talk to you. God wants to tell you what he wants you to do for his kingdom. I encourage you, listen for his voice. God bless you this week.